This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I want to say thank you to everyone around the world who tunes in and our ever-growing, beautiful audience globally and also locally. And I appreciate anyone who writes in and all the publicists, the Patreons. Thank you. Today, I am so excited because I'm going to do a show about one of the things I love most in the world, Paul McCartney and the Beatles. And our guest has co-written just an incredible, incredible piece of work. It's called the McCartney Legacy Series. This is going to be part one. And he's an author and he's coming to us from the UK and England and Yorkshire. It's such an honor to finally get on the show, Mr. Adrian Sinclair. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Paul. It's great to be uh, talking to you today. What did the Beatles mean to you? Oh, well, I don't know whether you would classify me as a second or third generation Beatles fan. Um, but uh, when I was growing up, um, my my dad was a big music fan and my mum as well. They they had two very different musical kind of tastes. My dad was really into rock and roll, like Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, uh, the Beatles. And my mum was really into things like soul and um you know so i grew up in a very musical house uh, but i suppose for me being 41 uh the first time i really got into the beatles was when the anthology series came out um and i can remember really vividly uh being on an exchange trip uh to the czech republic uh when i was about 14 or 15 and i think anthology 2 had just come out and i bought a copy uh, the two cassette copy of it uh, and I remember listening to the uh, outtakes of things like, you know, uh, you know my name, look at my number and things like that. And, uh, you know, those outtakes were were just so incredible and zany. And uh, I, I suppose they gave you a real insight into how the creative process worked for those four guys. Uh, and from that point on, I was hooked, really obsessed, I suppose you probably would say. Uh, and, yeah, so... Um, from that, yeah, from from that day forth, um, you know, I wanted to listen to everything that they'd ever put out, you know, as a band and as solo artists. And then beyond that, I suppose, like any fanatic fan, I was then looking for bootlegs and things, you know, so I could hear even more. Uh, so, yeah, for, for me, um, I grew up in the Britpop era uh, over here in England, you know, where you had big bands like Blur and Oasis and Pulp and... Uh, all, all these bands that were were coming through when I was younger, um, and I was in a band um, in high school, and and whenever you read interviews with these guys, they'd always say that their biggest influence was the Beatles. You know, you'd hear people like uh, Noel and Liam Gallagher talking about Paul McCartney and John Lennon and ripping them off on their own records quite <laughs> quite frequently. Um, so for me, it was like, you know, why why listen to that stuff when I could just go back to the source? Um, and I remember the first uh, duet I ever did with a friend of mine when we had a band together was This Boy. And we were stood face to face into a microphone with two guitars and it was just magic. So, um, so yeah, I suppose I've been hooked ever since I was, you know, in my early teens, really. That's such a great song with the three-part harmony. And that amazing bridge by John Lennon where he just breaks out. And it's kind of the quintessential perfect Beatle, early Beatles tune. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, that's kind of what epitomizes good music is when you have good vocal harmonies. And, um, you know, I I think any any music, any genre where you've got good vocal harmonies that are working, working like that, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, there's just something magic about two voices working together like, like that, you know, something so natural and beautiful about it. Um, so, yeah, um, or... You know, all, all of the Beatles' early stuff, I suppose, was like was um, a lot, a lot like that. Did you see Peter Jackson's masterpiece "Get Back"? I did, yeah, yeah, and it um, it was incredible, uh, in- incredible piece of filmmaking. I mean, I'm a filmmaker at heart. You know, I came through um, ITV over here in Leeds. I did my train traineeship. Uh, as an editor with them and I've gone gone on now to work as a producer uh, in TV over here in England um so really I'm a filmmaker at heart so you know everything about that series was just so mind-blowing and then you know from our perspective um it obviously had a knock-on effect on our book because we were in the middle of our edits around the time that it went on screen uh, so our editor Carrie said to us you know you guys might just want to, you know, revisit a couple of chapters, you know, after you've seen Peter Jackson's documentary. So, so yeah, it did send us back into the edit on a couple of things, but, um, but yeah, real um, mind blowing piece of television just to see the Beatles in their, um, you know, their natural environment in the studio. So, um, you know, when everybody thought that they were at war with one another, um, and, and there was a lot of that going on behind the scenes, obviously, but what you saw on screen were, just four guys doing what they do and, and doing it so well. And they were so young. And I just rewatched some of it the other night with a friend who loves the Beatles like we do. And it struck me that in about three and a half weeks, McCartney, who was at his zenith, was first he writes, get back on the spot waiting for John to show up with the other two guys like sitting there. But in the background on one scene, he's writing, let it be. And then in another scene, he brings in the long and winding road. And these are like some of the greatest songs ever written. And it's just like, oh, here's working on this new thing. You know, many times I've been alone. I feel like I'm watching the a universe being born or something. It's so miraculous. Yeah. I mean, it, it's strange, isn't it? Because we know that around that time that the, the group were kind of splintering slightly, you know, that they were developing their differences and, and, Perhaps that's kind of, you know, what pushed Paul on to to write those songs around that time. You know, that he uh, he he felt like he had to do everything in his power to keep that group together. And, you know, he had songs coming to him in his dreams and, you know, he he had magic coming to him in the studio. But, you know, that's kind of through, through the process of, of writing our book, we came to realise that that was just a sort of everyday occurrence for Paul, really. He's... He's like this kind of amazing musical magpie. You know, he just kind of seems to absorb uh, all of the world around him and, and and pluck ideas from the world around him. And then he wraps them up in poetry and melody and then captures them in song. Uh, it's it's an incredibly, you know, rare talent that he's got, McCartney. Quintessential genius. And also, he seemed like the only one who wanted to keep it going just by the sheer work of it all. Adrian, how did this project come together? Well, it, it sort of happened by accident. I, I say in our book, uh, I liken it to um, a film called With Nail and I. I don't know if you've, if you've seen that film. 
It's a film by Bruce by Bruce Robinson. And there's this great scene in it where Richard E. Grant is kind of standing in the pouring rain. And he, and he says to this farmer, we've come on holiday by accident or, or by mistake, I think it is, he says. And, uh, and I always say that we kind of wrote a biography by mistake. Uh, originally, this project was conceived as more of a look at Paul's work in the recording studio. We were going to do something along the lines of Mark Lewison's The Complete Beatles recording sessions uh, for Paul's solo career. You know, so look at Paul's um, studio sessions for, you know, every album he's recorded from the McCartney album in 69, 70 onwards. Um, but what, what ended up happening was that we we soon realised that it was impossible to separate um, Paul's life from his music. And the two, you know, kind of go hand in hand. They're so intricately wrapped around one another. So when you tried to pull the two of them apart, it just didn't work, you know, and the, the concept for the book, you know, the more that we tried to force this format, it, it just it just didn't seem to work. So in the end, we um, decided that we'd just tell the whole story. Um, and, and another thing that happened along the way was I was doing an interview back in 2016 with um, the former dr uh, Wings drummer, Denny Sywell. And uh, I remember it well, it was on uh, Halloween. So I was sitting there in um, my, um, <laughs> sitting there in my dining room, watching trick or treaters coming back and forth from my door as I was talking to Denny. Um, and anyway, at the end of our conversation, Denny uh, basically said to me, oh, you know, my wife, uh, Monique, she used to keep these little diaries when I was in Wings. Is that something you'd be interested in, you know, uh, taking a look at or getting some information from? And, you know, as a researcher, it was like that kind of eureka light bulb moment. Um, and then Denny and I ended up spending, you know, a good seven or eight hours over Skype um, going through, you know, these diaries that he kept and his wife kept uh, from 1970 all the way through to 73. Uh, so we ended up with this huge treasure trove of information. Um, you know, it covered everything from, you know, recording dates to times they'd gone out to concerts together, you know, meals they had with Paul and Linda. So we had, you know, what was like the inner workings of Wings uh, and beyond uh, for that four-year window. And, and I suppose that also, uh, you know, for me, it felt like we needed to do something better with that information than than just kind of throw it away. Um, yeah, so I mean, the whole project snowballed really from what was supposed to be just a small side project to something that's pretty much dominated my life for the last eight years. How come after all these years, Paul McCartney is still one of the most compelling subjects ever, as evidenced by the Peter Jackson movie? Anything he does is interesting and compelling. Why is this one human being, and of course the group, just timeless? And as generations discover them, they are curious too. But the more that comes out, I just find the more interesting this human being is. Yeah, I, th I think there's probably two things at, at play with Paul. I think, one, that he is probably the ultimate working class hero. You know, John Lennon sang the song, but really Paul McCartney was the working class or the, probably the most working class of the Beatles, him and George. Uh, and Ringo was probably working class as well. Um, but, you know, this is a guy who grew up in, um, you know, in council estates in Liverpool. 
um, in social housing. So, you know, he, he grew up in a, a very humble family and now he's risen to become this global phenomenon, you know, not only with the Beatles, but on his own as a as a cultural icon, as a musician, as a, a charitable patron, everything about the man. Um, but I suppose at the same time, he was part of the biggest um, cultural phenomenon that's ever swept through popular music. Uh, you know, being in, being in the biggest band that came out of the '60s, when you know the 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 whole environment and, and landscape of music uh, shifted so dramatically during that ten-year period, uh, and you know, is still rippling on now in the music that we listen to um, on our radios today. You know, a lot of this stuff is still influenced by the stuff that was being done back then in the '60s. And as famous as he is, do we even really know who he is? Well, that's, I think that's kind of one of the things that we've really tried to, you know, get to the bottom of with this book. Um, I remember a few years ago, um, Alan, my co-author, Alan Cozen, is good friends with Mark Lewison. They've known each other for decades. Uh, you know, Mark writes these incredible books about the Beatles. He's, he's in the midst of writing a, a trilogy at the moment about the Beatles. Um, and I um, was lucky enough to... Uh, have lunch with Mark and uh, you know he was just interested in finding out about what we were doing and you know what the project uh, was and he said to me um, he said to me the only question I, I would have for you is you know what am I going to learn about Paul McCartney from your book and that always kind of stuck in the back of my mind throughout the entire time we were we were putting this book together you know what what are people going to learn about Paul McCartney from this book and I suppose during the time we were we were writing it, what I came to realise is that you know he's just like you you or I. He's um, he's just a you know he, he's just human. He's he's a very normal guy with with very normal problems and um, and insecurities and sensitivities and strengths and weaknesses, just like any one of us. Uh, but because he's stuck in the public gaze. Uh, you know, all of these things are amplified. Um, but yeah, I'd like to think that, you know, people who read our book will come away with more of a sense of who Paul is as a, you know, as a man, as a musician, as a lyricist, uh, you know, and really, like I say, have a better understanding of, of of who Paul is, who Paul McCartney is. Also seems like a genuinely nice guy. I've met a few guys that have been in his current band for years and, others who had encounters and every story is just a beautiful encounter of a guy who's very present. I guess as long as you don't try to break into his house or interrupt a meeting or something, but he just seems to be like a, a really humble grounded guy who, who likes people. And it's, it's amazing given his life that he can be that way. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's like I say, he's just a normal guy. who happens to have this incredible talent. And, you know, I'd say, you know, the, the vast majority of people we've, we've spoken to about Paul really didn't have a bad word to say about him, not, not one bad word. You'll see in the book that, um, you know, he ruffled a few feathers occasionally. But you, one thing people have to remember about this period that we wrote about, um, 1969 to 73, was probably the most stressful period in Paul McCartney's life. So, uh, you know, if... Uh, if he came through that time 
having not said a bad word, then, you know, fair play to him because, you know, his band fell apart. Uh, he then reformed the bands and got panned by the critics for a period of three years. Uh, the press went to war with uh, him because he happened to put his wife in his band. Um, and, you know, you, you'd ha had all these things working against him. And yet he, he came through um, all that, that huge period of adversity uh, and delivered a band on the run to the world. So, you know, that says an awful lot about his kind of grit and determination um, as a man and as a, a musician and everything, really. Take us back to 1970 and the band breaking up in the next six months. It's really a dark time for him. I know he's talked about he was drinking, he couldn't get out of bed and depressed. What did you find during that period of, you know, here he grew up with these guys. Now he's at war. He lost everything he had identified with. They built this beautiful thing, crashed into the side of the mountain, and he was getting blamed because he announced it first. Well, give us Paul McCartney, uh, 1970. Yeah, well, as I, as I said, you know, he kind of starts 1970 and he's at home. Um, you know, probably still drinking quite heavily, still digesting the prospect of the Beatles no longer uh, being a, you know, a creative unit. And, uh, you know, he starts developing his uh, first solo album um, in his in his living room, basically at home. Uh, and, you know, then he feels like he's got enough materials together to go into the studio, but, you know, keeps it very quiet books books in his sessions under a different name um but then everything going on in the background of that recording you know was was shifting towards you know the, the beatles breaking up and it just so happened as you said that when he put out his press release for the mccartney album he was the first to announce publicly that the group oh well in in a kind of roundabout way that the group weren't really together anymore um and and John didn't take that very well because he made it quite clear, you know, in their earlier meetings that he wanted to be the one to announce the breakup of the group. Um, and yeah, and then he, um, you know, the, the the band kind of go to war at that point, really. Uh, and and you know, Paul and John didn't see each other for the best part of two years um, after after that announcement. So, um, so yeah, and then he, he kind of picks himself up and goes off to his farm in Scotland, Campbelltown, Scotland, and he tries to reboot his songwriting engine um, in the, you know, the tranquil surrounds of the uh, Scottish wilderness and, um, and writes all the material that goes on to form the Ram album. So... You know, from a period of depression, he suddenly emerges with, you know, 20 plus songs that that form Ram that is released about a year later. So, um, so yeah, it's incredible how he still managed to work through that period, you know, creatively and, and stay creatively busy. Doesn't he deal with everything by working? He's a classic workaholic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that was the most difficult thing about this project is the fact that Paul very rarely kind of sits still for for very for very long. So so if if you want to write a comprehensive book about his life and, and cover all aspects of it in detail, you've got an awful lot to cover. Um, and yeah, he he is a, a classic workaholic, 
and and I suppose that that must be his way of dealing with um, adversity. You know, it's probably the way he dealt with his mum passing away when he was so young, and um, and, and I suppose when the Beatles were in Hamburg and you know living in horrible conditions, the only way you get through that is through uh, camaraderie and creativity and. Um, in the case of a couple of the Beatles, Prellies, I think, at the time, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, What was the decision or why? How did it come to be for him to sue the other guys the way he did? And what kind of effect did that have on the relationship with him and the other three? Well, I think this is one aspect of, um, you know, the, um, the disillusion of the Beatles that's quite widely overlooked. It's, it's sort of often thought that he you know walked on the hillside with his brother-in-law john eastman uh, on new year's eve in 1970 and just made the decision to see the beatles but the um that that decision or you know that thought process started you know much earlier than then you know it's, it started in the summer of 1970 when his brother came to visit him in scotland and um, initially they tried to um, get Paul out of his, uh, you know, contract with Apple, um, which wasn't due to, um, it, it wasn't, the, the contract wasn't due to finish until 1977, because it was started in 67, so it was a 10-year contract. Um, so they, they tried their best to get Paul out of that contract um, over, the, over that summer. Um, but the, the other Beatles weren't having it. They basically said, you know, you're in the contract with us and, and that's it. So he set the wheels in motion uh, for his brother to investigate legal action and how it might work. So his brother, John Eastman, went away and they started preparing the case. And then for the rest of 1970, Paul, you know, spent another five or six months trying to persuade the Beatles, you know, to let him out of this contract. And, uh, you know, all the way through to December, they were giving him the same responses, which, you know, I think in George Harrison's case was, you know, you're, you're staying on the label, Harry Krishna or something like that, I think he said to him. So um, so Paul had no choice, you know, if, if he wanted to sever his business ties with the Beatles other than to sue them. And, and really, it was the, the one thing that he didn't want to do that he never wanted to do. But um, ultimately, you know, he... You know, he was right in that decision and right in his, uh, you know, and vindicated in his opinion of, of Alan Klein. And, you know, when when the other three Beatles eventually cancelled Klein's contract in 73, you know, it, it was kind of one of those I, I told you so moments where they accepted that Paul had been right all along. So he was vindicated, really. Um, but, yeah, he never wanted to go through the legal action. And, um yeah, it, did, it wasn't it wasn't a great PR move for him or or for any of the Beatles really around that time. When did he and John then cross that breach and start to connect again? It was a a good oh ten or eleven months after um, Paul. No, it's longer than that. Sorry, it was a year after Paul decided to sue. So Paul and John saw each other for the first time. I think it was on the. 17th of December 1971 they met in New York and by that time they'd been you know throwing musical barbs at one another in in their albums you know so uh Paul put out Ram and it had songs like too many people on it where he's saying you know too many people breaching practices and 
uh, you know, effectively having a go at John and Yoko um, for preaching practices. So John responds with, how do you sleep? Which, you know, took it to a whole new level, really. Um, and and from, from that point on, I think Paul was probably ready to wave the, the white flag and he he actually penned his song that was on the White Album, Dear Friend, which was, you know, um, it, it was almost like a musical white flag moment to John, but, but didn't obviously go out until after they'd met one another. Um, so, yeah, by December 1971, you know, they both decided that it really wasn't doing either one of them any favours to have this, you know, public war of words, you know, through their records, they were sending each other letters through the music press as well. Um, and yeah, they, they settled the differences in, in New York that winter. And I have to feel, and even in Get Back, you could tell that like brothers, these two guys loved each other, even to the end. I just feel like there was that love there. It was an incredibly interesting or dynamic in relationship, but I felt like they really loved each other. Yeah, I suppose it's like any relationship, isn't it? You know, they, um, they'd they known each other for so long, uh, you know, from their teenage years through through to their 30s, through to the stage where they were married and then having children and, uh, and growing up. And, uh, you know, if you know anybody for that period of time, it doesn't matter how long you've seen them or, or what differences you have with them. You know, when you reconnect, you still have that, uh, you know, all those shared experiences that you've gone through over the years. And in their case, you know, they they lived their life in a bubble. So, you know, all those experiences that they had were amplified and probably, you know, to the power of 10 of what the rest of us have with our friends and family because they, they lived in a bubble for 10 years together. Um, so, yeah, I think the love between the two of them never went away, you know, no matter what differences they had over the years and, what kind of niggling problems and jealousies and insecurities that the two of them had. There was still that bond and that love between the two of them all the way through to John's death. What was the dynamic between he and George? Because it always seemed like that was the classic older brother where George is a beetle, which is like the highest thing you can achieve at that time in the world. And yet he's still like the sidekick you saw in Get Back where they, they don't take him totally seriously. He's the younger guy. He's always the baby brother saying, hey, I need some attention. What about in the time right after the breakup? What was it like between Paul and George? Yeah, again, they didn't really speak to one another. Um, and, and when they did, uh, you know, when they did speak to one another over the phone, it was generally pretty heated. So, um, but, but yeah, their their relationship is, uh, is is incredibly complex, probably more complex than than John and, and Paul's. Uh, you, you could write a whole book about Paul and George's relationship. Interesting, too, in the anthology, when they were hanging out at the end, where they're talking about doing it, the three of them, because obviously John's gone, you can still tell there's this weird testiness between him and he and George. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, as I said, the, their relationship dynamic is a, is a really interesting one. And, and I don't, I can't honestly say after eight years that I've even really scratched the surface of Paul's relationship with with George. I think it's it's such a deep one, and I think because George lived for so much longer, 
you probably need to look at the you know everything that happened between 1970 and George's death to really fully understand their relationship. You know, there were so many uh, creative ups and downs over the years. You know, there were there were moments like John's death that brought the two of them together, but but generally you'll see in our book, you know, Paul and George don't really spend a huge amount of time together. You know, even going through into volume two, which we're working on at the moment. Uh, which covers the period 74 through to 80. Um, you know, Paul and George getting together, again, is is, is pretty infrequent. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's strange, you know, when pa Paul would often say things in the press in the 70s, you know, like, um, you know, it's like getting divorced, you know, you don't hang around with your ex-wife, but I, I just don't believe it when he says that, really. I, I think that there was a, a deep love and a deep connection between all these four guys. Uh, but when they did, you know, go their separate ways, th there were varying degrees of friction between, you know, various pairs of the Beatles. You talk about beautiful Linda. It seemed like they had one of the great love affairs ever and how supportive she was, especially when he hit rock bottom a couple of times. It felt, it feels like she's there to kind of hold him and also give him a good kick in the ass. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I can't can't put it better, really. Um, what a, what a fiercely determined woman Linda was. I mean, to uh, you know, she she marries a beetle, thinking you know that she struck gold, and then a few months later, his whole world starts to unravel. You know, he he gets depressed, he hits the bottle, and uh, you know who who's there to to pull him out of that morass? It's Linda. You know, she, as Paul says in Maybe I'm Amazed, you know, hung him on the line, pulled him out of time. You know, she she effectively sobered the man up uh, and said, you know, look, pull yourself together. You know, you're you're um, you know you're bigger than this, and you can do this on your own. And um, you know, Denny, Denny Sywell um, would often say to us that, you know, Linda was Paul's comfort blanket. And I and I think that's a really good way of, of looking at their relationship. And, and it explains why they spent so much of their lives together. Um, you know, I, I've had people say, say to me things like, you know, I walked into the room and Paul and Linda were wrapped around one another. You know, it's like they were inseparable. Um, but I think that that was the reality of it. And that's the reason why he asked Linda to be in wings. You know, he knew that he was asking too much of Linda. You know, he knew that uh, she could sing backing vocals in a studio if she was given time. Um, and he knew she could play a few chords on the piano. But but to ask her to be, um, you know, part of a new band with him as an ex-Beatle uh, was, a, was um, a monumental ask for anyone, really. Uh, I mean, any any one of those guys in Wings, you know, Denny Sywell, Henry McCulloch, uh, Denny Lane, these guys are all living in the shadow of Paul. And uh, and Linda, as a kind of uh, a non-musician, really, you know, she's come from a, a world where she was a photographer. Um, she's even more so in the shadows. So when they start playing... Um, you know, concerts in Europe and putting out albums, you know, the, the press, you know, they just rain fire on Linda for a period of three or four years. And, um, you know, her resilience and strength of character to put up with that and still kind of soldier on says an awful lot about the kind of woman that Linda was, you know, um, fiercely loyal and, uh, you know, 
Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to imagine, uh, you know, how Paul's life would have unfolded without um, that incredible woman by his side throughout that whole period. Might have ended up in L.A. with Nielsen getting drunk and in fights and like the lost years, right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> Linda was just earthy mama, grounded. I felt so sorry for her. She took so much shit and... I almost want to go back in a time machine and say to Paul, listen, I'm from the future. Don't put Linda in your band. Don't do that to your wife. It's cruel. I, I, but I, I realized that they just wanted to be together all the time. The legend was they barely spent a night apart well, from the time they were married until her death. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like as, as I said, um, we spent a lot of time speaking with Danny Sywell, who had obviously a, a really intimate relationship with the two of them. Um, for a period of four years and yeah Denny said uh, I think he he only ever spent something like half a day with Paul uh, and no Linda you know they were always together you and I talked about our love of nature before the show started McCartney seems to have that great love of nature too the up there on the Mull of Kintar he's got a ranch out near Santa Fe he really seems to find himself his peace and I've heard an interview once where he said he found it takes him a little time after a tour. If he gets out in the nature by himself, he'll suddenly say, oh, there you are. Like he'll find him real, his real self. He he is a great lover of nature, the miraculous and magic of uh, of life I've seen. Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of that goes back to his childhood. You know, we, we talk about this in chapter two, I think, of the book. Um, the one one of the houses he grew up in was um, on the edge of an estate in Liverpool, and you know you walk out of the estate and you were into the countryside. So Paul would spend a lot of his youth or his you know his formative youth in the countryside, and he's a he's a great bird watcher, um, and and yeah. So I I think after a period of living in London and getting really bogged down with the you know the process of, of of being in the Beatles and constantly having the press on your doorstep and fans on your doorstep, um, as was the case at Paul's house. Um, yeah, I think getting out into the countryside was was the great escape for him, really. And that's where a lot of his um, you know great creative periods happened as well. You know, like I said, the the period where he wrote the Ram album, a lot of that came out of um, a trip to Campbelltown. Most of Band on the Run, I think, was written at his farm in Scotland. So, um, I mean, I've been up to them uh, to Campbelltown myself. You know, I I really wanted to experience uh, that environment for myself when we were working on the book. And uh, I drove up this cobbled track, and you could see Paul's farm in the distance, uh, or one of his farms anyway, High Park. And then there's a, another farm he owns. Well, he owns the entire peninsula pretty much. Uh, but anyway, it's the most uh, incredible, peaceful place. You know, you, you just you just stand in the middle of uh, nowhere and you, you can't hear anything. You know, there's no cars. There's, um, you know, you just hear the wind and the birds and the wildlife. And, you know, you can understand why so many of those songs that he wrote during that time came out of scotland you know wildlife and heart of the country and you know if you spend any amount of time immersing yourself in that world um it has an effect on you and it's a it's a pretty remarkable place uh campbelltown i'd um highly recommend you know to any mccartney fan 
you know, just spending a few days up there and, you know, going, going, looking around the harbour and, um, you know, tripping around the peninsula to see where they filmed the video for Mull of Kintyre and, you know, did their photo shoots around there. It's an incredible uh, place. And, uh, you know, you could not be more isolated. It's, you know, five hours from Glasgow, um, which is the nearest major airport. Um, so you're effectively driving for five hours into the wilderness where there are very few street lights. The whole place is just, you know, very small villages and towns and farmhouses. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like I say, it's very easy to understand why Paul, you know, lost himself in Scotland. It's a beautiful place. I've traveled there and I've been in upper Scotland. It's like going back in time. It's so primordial and primitive and the locks. It's just gorgeous in the mist. You could see the inspiration and to get away from that craziness up there. It's very healing and powerful. Did Band on the Run sort of put him back on the map? That's such a great album. And that song is just a masterpiece. Yeah, well, he'd had kind of, you know, limited success in the early 70s i say that but um you know the mccartney album was was a number one in america and in england i think i might be wrong there um but then he had um you know singles that went to number one uncle uncle albert admiral house he was a number one in america um red rose speedway went to number one in america my love went to number one in america so it's not like paul wasn't enjoying success in the early 70s but really he didn't have that kind of big album that would put him back on the map um you know put him back in the game and when band on the run came out that was a game changer for him really and you know from all perspectives uh, because his relationship with emi before then was kind of on the slide and then he puts that band on the run and run and it's such a phenomenal success that you know all of a sudden he's emi's darling again you know um but yeah the, i mean this but the story of that album uh, you know again that was kind of born out of adversity uh, and you know that was kind of one of those you know i'll show you i'll show you kind of moments uh, when uh, two of his band decided to you know walk out on him um, and, you know, we document all of that in, you know, pretty extraordinary detail in the book, you know, the lead up to Henry McCulloch quitting uh, during rehearsals for Band on the Run. And then the day they're due to leave for Lagos, Nigeria, Denny Sywell leaves the band. So Paul, you know, Paul and Linda had a decision to make. By that time, Denny Lane was already on a plane with um, Jeff Emmerich, they they were already in Lagos. So he had the decision to make, either we pull the plug on recording or we go ahead with it anyway. And, you know, what an incredible album to come out of that, you know. Um, and and I, I, I still think to this day, it's his most successful solo album. Almost got killed on the streets too, in Nigeria. Oh yeah, I mean, he had a, he had, he had a riot over there, didn't he, in Nigeria? So, I mean, that was one of the really illuminating things when we were writing the book, because I spent a lot of time in the British Library um, and I went through all of the Nigerian press from the time. And remarkably, there was very little coverage of Paul's coverage over there. Uh, uh, sorry, Paul's time over there. It was almost non-existent, like he hadn't even been in the country. But we could find little um, little details about the time they were over there. You know, like 
um, he went to see fellow Ransom Kuti, you know, the famous uh, Nigerian uh, singer and performer in action um, while he was there. And we found, you know, like a poster for the gig that he went to. So we knew when that happened. And then we found we found out the date that Paul was mugged. Uh, and then the day after he was mugged, he collapsed. And that kind of put an end to those sessions, really. So, um, so yeah, he had a pretty rough ride in Nigeria. I think he kind of went over there wanting to soak up, you know, the uh, African influence and maybe use some Nigerian musicians on the album. Um, but then after his trip to see fellow Ransom Kuti at the shrine and being accused of stealing the black man's music, uh, and then being mugged and then collapsing, that kind of put an end to it, really. Good gist for the mill, though, and all the writing. Uh, and he did have some great hits like uh, Another Day, like Admiral Halsey, like you said, My Love is a Masterpiece. But the album Band on the Run, that's where it, he like well, he jumped a notch. I remember we used to play that thing over and over again. And I still hear that album title track. And I marvel it. It's just the perfect song, the three parts of it. And him singing his ass off. What a voice. Yeah, and it's uh, a brilliant story, that song as well, because, um, you know, Paul talks in his book about, uh, in the lyrics, about that song being about freedom and uh, imprisonment. But we trace back his really early interviews about um, all of the songs that feature in our book. And he talks um, in the 70s about, the song being influenced by a business meeting that happened uh, at Apple when they were trying to dissolve their the business ties, the, the four Beatles. And uh, George Harrison uh, in that meeting, I think he said something like, well, we're all prisoners kind of inside ourselves, you know, when, when they were trying to separate their, you know, their, their business connections. And Paul comes away from that, from that meeting um, and we managed to find the date for the meeting, funnily enough, because um, there were always fans outside Apple HQ. So there were photographs of Paul and George coming in and out of the meeting. So you'll find the date in the book. Um, and he comes away from that meeting and he thinks, oh, there's something in that you know, thing that George just said about us all being prisoners, you know. And then next thing he's, you know, right in, uh, stuck inside these four worlds, trapped inside forever, you know. And and those lyrics are um, are really a statement about him feeling imprisoned by Apple at the time and wanting to break away from them. But I suppose he was maybe feeling imprisoned by various other things that were going on in his life at the time. Um so yeah, there's there's uh, some incredible stories you'll find in the book um, about some of the you know some of Paul's biggest hits. How has he managed to stay so normal through all this? That's a really good question. I suppose it probably comes down to his upbringing. You know, he he grew up in a working class house. Um, you know, very and when when you have a very humble upbringing like that. I think, you know, it, it never goes away from you. So I suppose, you know, in whatever situation Paul finds himself in, whether he's, you know, uh, being knighted by the Queen or playing to 100,000 people uh, in Brazil or wherever it might be, um, he's still that guy who grew up, uh, you know, in social housing in Liverpool and he's still very grounded and, you know, he's, he's still a great family man as well. You know, his family are the centre of his world and always have been. So I suppose his family keep him grounded as well. I don't think we'll ever see anything like him or the Beatles again. 
No, I don't think so. All the things that went into it, the timing and the time and all that kind of stuff. And I just feel like we're so lucky to have them. I love how he talks about, too, how miraculous it is that these three guys within one bus stop somehow met, had guitars, came together, and created this music out of Liverpool that literally is still changing the world. Yeah, there's something, uh, I suppose, strangely spiritual about it all, isn't there, that it, it, was it a coincidence or was it the universe at play? I don't know. It's really hard to say. Um, yeah, I mean, Mark Lewison spends, you know, devotes his life to looking at coincidences and he always says there are no coincidences. We explore a lot of them in our book as well. And um, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't think anything like that phenomenon will ever come, you know, come around again. Um, and, it, and it's one thing. Uh, I often say to Alan when we're talking about our book, which is that, you know, 500 years from now, when we're six feet under the ground, uh, you know, I just hope that there are historians who are looking at, you know, the the greatest composers of the 20th century and they want to learn more about Paul McCartney. And they pluck our book off the shelf and they, you know, and they learn something from it, really, uh, because, um, you know, I, I feel that there are very few um cultural figures who deserve you know their life being explored more than paul mccartney there really is a beautiful spirituality to all of it isn't there i don't believe in coincidences either and he talks about it too he's always talking about the the miraculous i just feel like there's some beautiful positive inspiring philosophical spiritual thread that runs through all of it from the beatles through his whole career and the way he lives his life do you do you see that too? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. I I, I couldn't put it um, better than you just put it, so I won't try. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a one hundred percent listener supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash what matters most and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.